0: And welcome to episode four of Bad Gays, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemi, a writer and novelist, and I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode, we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil people and complicated people. We're focusing
1: on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad. I think we can all agree. And we're trying to ask why we don't remember our villains as well as our heroes. So last week we talked about Lawrence of
0: Arabia. Who are we profiling this week, Hugh? James Charles Stuart, better known as James the Sixth and First. The Sixth and First. That's the Sixth of Scotland and the First of England. Oh boy. James was born in 1566, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, and Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. And this was an extremely turbulent time in uh, British and European history. The English Reformation was barely 40 years underway when he was born. The Reformation had kick-started a complete revolution in British religious, economic and cultural life. The feudal state was transforming into a country of intense ec- economic growth and a period of primitive accumulation and enclosure and the development of a bourgeois class. All things we love. Yep. Yeah. And this was less than 50 years since Luther had first nailed his theses to the church door. Had kickstarted that phase of the Reformation, and forty years since the end of the German Peasants' War, and the French Wars of Religion were only just beginning. So Europe was in a state of intense turmoil. And uh, Mary, the, the Queen of uh, England, was Elizabeth I, who was the daughter of Henry VIII, who had kickstarted the Reformation, of the, monast- uh, the dissolution of the monasteries, and the Reformation in England, after the Pope refused him his divorces. But obviously Catholics didn't regard Elizabeth I as the legitimate queen as she was born into a a later marriage. Uh, And the Catholics regarded the next in line to the throne as Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary, Queen of Scots was, as the name suggests, the Queen of Scotland. So James was born into this environment and a year after he was born, his father was murdered. The Queen very quickly remarried uh, the man who... Many regarded as being the murderer, and therefore the Protestant rebels overthrew Queen Mary and made James, her son, the king at one one years old. The Queen's illegitimate half-brother, James Stuart, was made the regent, so he governed on behalf of James Stuart until he became the king. And this is because you can't have a one-year-old actually running a country? Someone's got to do the dirty business, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've known some mean toddlers, but still. (laughs) So the king was then raised within the Scottish Protestant religion, which was known as the Kirk. His senior tutor was a man called George Buchanan, who had written extensively on limiting the power of the crown. And so he raised James as a good Protestant king. He beat him regularly and he raised him to think that his role was to limit the power of the crown, which is important later on. Anyway, there were a series of battles between the Catholic supporters of Mary and Scottish Protestants, and as a result, Mary fled to England, where she was arrested and imprisoned by Elizabeth I. And so James then governed, as a child, for a series of regents, the last of whom was a man called Esme Stuart, his second cousin and his uncle. Stuart, Stuart with a W, unlike James Stuart, who was Stuart with a U. Oh boy. So, yeah. So uh, Stuart was uh, 37. He was charismatic, exotic, French, and Catholic. Do you have his number? (laughs) And James uh, immediately began lavishing gifts and titles on Stuart and uh, made him the first Duke of Lennox, the only Duke in Scotland at the time, which was extremely worrying to the Presbyterian Protestants. They forced Lennox to the Duke of Lennox, Esme Stuart, to convert to uh, religion or to renounce his relationship with James, and he did convert, in fact. But there was a lot of rumour at the time that um, that the relationship was improper, shall we say. Um, here's a quote from the time. From the time he was 14 years old, and no more, that is, when the Lord Stuart came into Scotland, even then he began to clasp someone in his embraces of great love above all others. And James became in such love of him as in open sight of the people, often he would clasp him around the neck with his arms and kiss him. Wow. Yeah. And the church was especially worried that Lennox was attempting to, quote, draw the king to carnal lust. And when you say the church there, you mean the Presbyterian church in Scotland? The Presbyterian church, that's correct, yeah. So two Scottish earls then uh, kidnapped James and forced Esme into exile. Uh, but living in Paris, he was actually greeted as an apostate and uh, uh, the Catholics didn't welcome him there. However, he didn't actually re- um, renounce his Presbyterian faith as the uh, Scottish had thought he was going to do because they thought it was all a big charade. And it seemed actually it was a, it was a genuine love match to a certain extent. Hmm.
1: Um,
0: some letters that he sent, some secret letters that he sent to James while in exile saying um, that his faithfulness is engraved within my heart, which will last forever. Whatever might happen to you, I shall always be your faithful servant you are alone in this world whom my heart is resolved to serve. And would to God that my breast might be split open so that it might be seen what is engraven therein. And Esme Stuart died in France, and true to his word, he actually had his embalmed heart sent to James.
1: Wow. This may remind some people who are listening of um, the 2018 film The Favourite by Yorgos Lanthinos about this kind of lesbian intrigue in the court of Queen Anne and... The ways in which these power struggles and these love struggles kind of became intertwined with one another and almost inseparable from one another
0: absolutely throughout his life, he had a series of these favorites who were battling for position, just like in the film, and also yeah that there's this this strange mix of politics and emotion and trust and love that that, that all mixed together into a very heady brew. Hmm. Anyway, James was freed from imprisonment in 1583 and over the next two decades, ruling in his own right, he succeeded in pacifying the nobles of Scotland under his crown. He made a lasting peace with Elizabeth I in 1586 and despite her in 1587, when the Spanish Armada invaded a year later, he wrote to Elizabeth describing himself as your natural son and compatriot of your country. So he was clearly aiming to be king. He knew he was in line for the throne and he was grooming himself for his position. And he would have been in line for the English
1: throne as well as the Scottish throne because he's part of this royal family
0: and Elizabeth is childless, yes? Absolutely, yes. He did actually marry to Anne of Denmark, um, and initially, he, apparently, he was infatuated with her. They had three children who lived to adulthood, the youngest of whom, his second son, would become Charles I. But their relationship quickly became estranged, and by the time he was King of England, it said they, they didn't even live together. But immediately following his marriage to Queen Anne of Denmark, on his passage back across the North Sea, their travels were interrupted by terrible, terrible storms. They had to take shelter in Norway for a number of weeks. And the Danish admiral, who was escorting in the fleet, accused the wife of an official in Danish court of being a witch. And so in Denmark, a witch trial was held. And hearing this, James decided to hold his own, implicating several Scottish noblemen. Hundreds were arrested and many women and men were horrifically tortured into confession. And this began the start of his lifelong obsession with witchcraft. He attended many trials, and in 1597 the great Scottish witch hunt began, where over 400 people nationwide being tried as witches, and it's thought that over 200 were killed. James himself actually wrote a significant book on witchcraft, Demonology, which elucidates and develops his theological theories of witchcraft and justifies the witch trials, as well as examining the effects of witchcraft upon the world. That was published in 1597, six years before he became King of England. In 1603, when he was 36, Elizabeth I died childless, and so James, as next in line to the English throne, became the King of England and Scotland. He ruled this as a personal union, but he wanted to turn it into a political union and rule as a single kingdom. However, Parliament resisted this, and this was the start of a very complex, difficult relationship that he had with Parliament, the Parliament of England throughout his entire reign. But in 1605... There was a plot on his life, the Blow Up Parliament, which we now know as the Gunpowder Plot or the Guy Fawkes Plot. And that brought him a lot closer to Parliament. After that, he sanctioned much hard, harsher repression of Catholics, which is something that the mainly Protestant Parliament was really advocating and really helped alleviate their concerns that he might be a, a secret Catholic. But also, um, he demanded conformity from the emerging Puritans, the Puritan movement, and that conformity was on dress, on on, um, types of worship, but also included uh, an official version, an official translation of the Bible, which is one of the great achievements of his reign. Uh, We still today refer to it as the King James Version, and it created a lot of idioms and developed the English language, and is really quite a beautiful work of translation. Hmm. But the issue for James really was his contrasting view of what a king should be, which comes came from his Scottish background, and the developing social situation in England. James had ruled a very different country in Scotland. It had a much more feudal structure still, and the traditional nobility had much more power. Um, it lent itself to his theory of absolutist power, something that other European countries were attempting to do at the time. Um, and he was very successful in controlling the warring lords... Um, But England, however, had much more power held by the emerging bourgeoisie and landowners, which had political manifestations in Parliament. James made few concessions to this increasing opposition to his absolutist style in Parliament. Um, This had followed the breakup of church lands during the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, which had produced a huge amount of new wealth through enclosures. According to Perry Anderson, the net income of the gentry had perhaps quadrupled since 1530, and by the end of James's reign, London was seven to eight times larger than in the reign of Henry VIII. And remember, there's less than two decades between Henry VIII's reign and the start of James's Scottish reign, so they're very close together. The lack of a standing army meant that there was relatively low rural taxation, meaning that a prosperous yeomanry was developing, and they weren't threatening the nobility of insurrection. So without that fear of insurrection the nobility didn't really have a stake in building a strong absolutist coercive state authority. His struggles with parliament meant he often ruled without them but then lacking their consent to levy new taxes he had to raise money in other ways and one of those ways was selling privileges and positions to the rich. Offices, roles in the military etc etc. This was his form of patronage, and adhered strongly to his belief in absolutism, but it also intersects strongly with what we can figure out about his sexuality, and you can see here how his sexual preferences actually affected his reign. So you're saying that some people argued that James was giving patronages to people that he had romantic or sexual relationships with? Absolutely. His form of patronage was rife with corruption and open to uh, people's talents, shall we say. (laughs) Well... Talent should always be rewarded, don't you think? And this um, really starts to be a problem in 1607 when he meets a 17-year-old called Robert Carr who um, had just hurt his leg during a royal jousting match that James was attending. Is this going to be another one of our evil twinks? Uh, Yes, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) I think that's an emerging theme here. Um, James immediately fed in love and nursed him back to health, and he very quickly became the king's favourite and was knighted. Uh, talking of the evil twink uh, trope, he was actually known for being both handsome and stupid. Aren't they all? Yeah. Uh, he was a gentleman of the bedchamber and a knight of the guard garter, but he wanted to marry another young noblewoman whose name was uh, Francis Howard. Great young love. The problem is Francis Howard was already married. Yeah. But James, as a favour to his uh, favourite, he stacked a religious court with very sympathetic bishops who annulled her first marriage to the third Earl of Essex. And as a wedding present, he made Carr the Earl of Somerset. And this is a good example of his long term consequences for the British state that this patronage and absolutist uh, corruption led to. Mm-hmm. Because Essex, understandably, was humiliated having his wife taken off him. <clears throat> And uh, he devoted his life, therefore, to military training. And eventually he rose up and became the first captain general and chief commander of the Parliamentarian Army during the English Civil War. Hmm. So um, his son rued that relationship, shall we say. Anyway, only a few years later, his relationship with Somerset became very difficult. He complained that Somerset had been, quote, Creeping back and withdrawing yourself from lying in my chamber, notwithstanding my many hundred times earnest soliciting you to the contrary. (laughs) So basically, Somerset had lost interest. Now he'd got what he wanted. Anyway, Somerset came to a sticky end himself a few years later when it was revealed that his wife had murdered his best friend for opposing the marriage, and he was probably aware of this. He actually threatened to out James in court if he was ever brought to trial, but in the end he, he was brought to trial and he never did. So he didn't out James in court, but are people at the time talking
1: about this handsome young man who's getting all these favours and why that's happening? Or are we going to hear more about that later?
0: Um, Yeah, people were aware of at the time, but really the really troubling relationship for the rest of the country came in his with his next lover. So who's his next lover? Well, his next alleged lover uh, was a man named George Villiers, who he met when he was in his early 20s, about the same time that Somerset was falling out of favour. And um, as an example of his ability to uh, manipulate the situation and as an example of this system of patronage, it's important to recognise that he moved from being a royal cupbearer to becoming the admiral of the fleet in less than 10 years. Anyway, he was made the Duke of Buckingham in 1623, so from now on I'm going to refer to George Villiers by his, his title Buckingham. And there's a lot of controversy still about whether their relationship was romantic or whether it was sexual, but um, I've got a few quotes from James to Buckingham and Buckingham to James here that I'll just read that gives a bit of a flavour of their relationship, I making you can judge yourself. James, speaking of Buckingham, said, "'You may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else here and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf and not to have it thought to be a defect, for Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed.' Christ had John and I have George. Meanwhile, Buckingham, writing to James, said, I naturally so love your person and adore all your other parts, which are more than ever one man had. <laughs> I desire only to live in your in the world for your sake, and I will live and die a lover of you. Buckingham at the time was referred to and regarded as uh, a Ganymede. Ganymede is uh, a figure from Greek mythology, a mortal youth, who Zeus falls in love with and he abducts to become his cupbearer. But a poem of the time um, about James and Buckingham asked for God to save, quote, my sovereign from a Ganymede, whose whorish breath had power to lead his majesty which way at list. And it went on to refer to Buckingham as, that slime that keeps my sovereign's eyes from viewing the things that will be our undoing. And another poem of the time actually genders Parliament as a faithful wife and the king as a husband who's been unfaithful. But it worse. it says that he's been unfaithful by himself being a Ganymede, and therefore being the passive partner, being fucked by Buckingham, and as a result leaving his arsehole open to penetration by Spain and by the po- popery, by the Catholic Church. So clearly this was a matter of public discussion, a matter of public satire. Hmm. People were aware of this.
1: That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. But I don't know yeah, I, there was definitely a different style in terms of the way that men addressed each other at that, that time, close friends uh, within court, so that's why there has been a lot of argument about it. But I have a few more quotes that might help you make up your mind about whether it was a gay relationship or not. This is um, Buckingham to James again. Sir, all the way hither I entertain myself, your unworthy servant, with this dispute, whether you loved me now, better than at the time which I shall never forget at Farnham, where the bed's head could not be found between the master and his dog which clearly suggests that they were sharing a bed. Hmm. And meanwhile, James wrote in response, I desire only to live in this world for your sake. I had rather live banished in any part of the earth with you than live a sorrow sorrowful widow's life without you. God bless you, my sweet child and wife, and grant that you may ever be a comfort to your dear dad and husband. Wow. Yeah. So he's referring to him as his spouse at this point. Spouse and father. Yeah. Daddy. Hmm. But anyway, his, um, his extravagant court and his policy of uh, rapprochement with the Spanish, which, the Catholic Spain, which was a serious concern, was um, incredibly unpopular with the landowning Protestant class, as was this absolutist strategy of selling monopolies and political and state offices. So his attempt to reassert a feudal dynamic like the rest of Europe through absolutism was really clashing with England's newly, de- newly developing social and economic character. And it could only really be asserted, therefore, through his ideological and religious thought, which was the development at the time of this idea of the divine right of kings, Mm -hmm. which obviously would come to create a lot of problems for his son, who also believed in his divine right. And what is the idea of the divine right of kings, Hugh? The divine right of kings is a theory of state where the relationship between the king and his subjects is the relationship between gods and humans, and therefore the king is king because god has chosen to him to rule on his behalf so it's a sort of crypto theocratic model mm-hmm. uh which conceives a, of uh, the body politic as the, as as a as a whole hmm. with the king with absolute right to rule so we may maybe we maybe we think of uh, you know the state as me as being a- absolutely a- yeah and this would become the big issue in the English civil war which was that king charles i james's son uh, refused to acknowledge that um, parliament had equal rights or more rights in terms of control over levying taxes you know he he regarded himself as answerable only to god and therefore when it came to his trial he refused in fact to participate in his own trial at all hmm. um and at the same time uh this economic development was a great tool for 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 james Um, And it was around this time that England really started to pioneer its process of colonisation. For example, under James, there was the plantation of of Northern Ireland, uh, the plantation of Ulster, as it was called. And he used the lands that was being freed up there through the suppression of Irish people and the enclosures of Irish lands to reward loyal lords uh, in previous wars. And These are uh, England's
1: first colonial adventures on the Irish territory. No, they're not.
0: the 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 colonization of Ireland started much uh, much earlier, but this was a real strategic attempt to suppress the Irish through um, stealing the stealing the land.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and at the same time, as well, in sixteen oh seven, was the foundation of Jamestown, which was the first surviving English colony in the Americas. And then shortly after, there were colonies in the Caribbean and Newfoundland. But obviously, James's corruption of this patronage system bred a huge amount of resentment amongst the English bourgeoisie and parliamentary powers. Um, Buckingham himself had gathered so many privileges that he actually challenged the traditional monopolies of the company merchants. And that drove them into an alliance with the new capitalist merchants, Um, which became a really powerful force. You know, he was building these enemies against himself of all the new powers, all the new economic power in England and allying it with a political power that was bound to turn against him at some point. Um, At the same time, for example, Buckingham as the great admiral actually captured, looted a French ship and claimed its cargo, um, which he had the right to do as a great admiral, but that then left English merchant shipping totally open to French retaliation. So he's building these enemies quite quickly. Hmm. Likewise, Buckingham, who was always engaged in some new military pursuit or uh, other on the European continent, uh, he ended up helping the French Catholics in their sea battles with the uh, against the French Protestant Huguenots uh, during the Wars of Religion, which absolutely appalled the English Protestants because of the idea that English Protestants would be fighting in open combat in sea warfare with French Protestants was totally anathema to. The whole point of the Reformation, and not just fighting Protestants, but fighting Protestants in an alliance with Catholics. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and most importantly, perhaps that um, Buckingham was key in a huge uh, amount, of, uh, gaining a huge amount of control in administering the plantations in Ireland, and that brought him a huge amount of personal wealth and power, and lacked an oversight, in fact, from Parliament and the King. So he was Buckingham was a real enemy of uh, a lot of people at the time. Towards the end of his life, the king started to drink very heavily and became very ill and actually lived in his palaces outside of London and left much of his affairs in the hands of Buckingham, which again gave him even more power. And the king died in 1625 and Buckingham then transferred his allegiances straight over to his son but himself was actually assassinated a few years later. But you can see here how the stage is being set for a clash between a Protestant emerging bourgeois parliament and an absolutist monarchy with perhaps Catholic tendencies that was going to happen in the reign of his son, Charles I, and would lead to the English rev- revolutions and uh, the abolition of the monarchy, in fact. Eventually, this would lead to the reign of Charles II and then James II after him. But there was always this distrust of the Catholic influences and the homosexuality the absolutism, favoritism, favoritism, that eventually would lead to the Glorious Revolution, which is when the Stuarts were overthrown and replaced with William and Mary, who were seen as a trustworthy Protestant monarchy. Mm. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out.
1: And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, We'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and
0: some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. And saying nice things is always
1: free. So if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks.
0: So that's James's life story? That's James's life story. Interesting.
1: Really fascinating, I think. Um, I mean, there's so much to chew on here. The first thing I think to ask about is from pretty early in the story, but this involvement with kicking off the witch hunts on the British Isles. Um, there's this kind of rich tradition of socialist and socialist feminist history and theory thinking about the figure of the witch and what the witch hunts meant. I'm thinking about the work of Foucault and Carlo Ginsberg and especially Sylvia Federici, who in her book Caliban and the Witch ties the witch hunts to the process of enclosure in order to argue for a much more violent and a much longer duration period of quote-unquote primitive accumulation than in a sort of traditional Marxist account of what is euphemistically called the transition to capitalism. And so it's interesting to me that somebody who is both kind of kicking off this process that is strengthening the power of the bourgeoisie then ends up getting into fights with them by fighting for what we might think of as being an older um, economic
0: system and an older political system, this system of kind of absolute divine feudal rule. Well, I think what's interesting about James's rule is that he doesn't have control over the economic developments that are creating his political power. It's out of his hands. So his attempts to turn back the clock Uh, completely futile and i don't think he's obviously working with an analysis or an understanding of the, the effects of those social changes in such a way that he can actually change their path he's taking advantage of the fact that for example there's more land opening up through primitive accumulation through the enclosures that he can therefore Um, divvy it out to his loyal lords, for example. But that's not really changing the fundamental dynamic, which is about the creation of capital through accumulation, which is going to create a bourgeois class which is far more powerful than he will ever be. So, Hugh, you're telling me that James I did not have
1: a socialist feminist analysis? (laughs) I'm absolutely saying that, yeah. I think we can safely argue that It's interesting, too, uh, thinking about Federici, because part of her argument is that enclosure extends beyond just the enclosure of lands and fields. And she talks about how women's reproduction uh, and, in fact, homosexuality begin to be policed around this time as part of a need to
0: reproduce a body of workers who will later become the proletariat. Absolutely, and that starts com- uh, completely to- coterminously with the in- with enclosures, because the um, the Buggery Act of 1533 was part of the uh, policy of suppressing the Catholic Church during the dissolution of the monasteries. So the idea was, be- I mean, obviously before, the- before that, um, homosexuality was, well, buggery was a sin, so- sodomy was a sin. It was a matter for the cur- uh, church courts to deal with. But... Under Henry VIII and the Buggery Act of 1533, it becomes a civil offence, punishable by death, and so that becomes a, a incredibly handy tool for Henry VIII to use, either to use directly or to use as a threat or as a as a scurrilous libel against the monks, to insinuate that there's this relationship there between um, Catholic monastic life and uh, buggery, mm-hmm. which becomes a, yeah this, this huge tool, but I, that. Begins the implementation of the idea of um, sodomy and homosexual behavior as a criminal offense to be policed. Mm -hmm. And
1: we talk a little bit more about the kind of evolution of those laws, at least in the English context, in the second episode. That, I think, transitions us really well into one of the spiciest debates in gay history and queer history and queer theory in general, which we're not going to solve here, but which I think we could have a really interesting conversation about kind of based on what we've learned about James. And that is the conflict between, and I am going to really oversimplify these two positions here for the purpose of laying out this argument, um, a social constructionist view in which, and this is what you'd find in work that is influenced by Foucault as the uh, sort of classic example of this, um, or John D'Amelio also is one of the... Um, originators of social construction theory with his classic uh, mid-70s essay, Capitalism and Gay Identity, that basically gay identity is something that can only exist underneath a kind of, or within a kind of, um, capitalist mode of production and exchange, therefore it is about in 1870, give or take, that Uh, What had previously been homosexual acts are converted through this process of medicalization into a homosexual identity. Again, there are many people in that camp who have a more complicated understanding of what was actually going on through that process, myself included, um, versus um, the idea, and this is something that I know Richter Norton really pushes um, and is maybe considered to be more old-fashioned at this point, um, an essentialist view in which there has basically always been something that you can call gay, and it has been basically unchanged over time, and so of course you can say someone like James I is gay, whereas in a social constructionist point of view, to say that James was gay, or to use the word gay to describe James, would be sort of nonsensical because you're talking about something that, like, didn't or couldn't have existed. I think from the way I introduced that, my own sympathies should be pretty clear in that I think both that it is a true fact that the sexual acts and sexual identities and the ways that people have available to them to make sense of the world are always based on whatever the prevailing system of production and exchange is. And there's a really good rubric in a 2012 book by Peter Drucker called Warped um, that kind of lays out a very 30,000 feet level view of how these systems evolved alongside one another. But at the same time, you do run into these cases where it seems pedantic to not acknowledge what... A source is telling you, and these sources scream out to me that this is somebody who is experiencing homosexual attraction and homoromantic attraction for other men.
0: Absolutely. I mean I don't think it's possible to deny that there uh, that the the this form of relationship does exist between them. Um I personally think there's no way you could possibly describe it as a gay relationship. But I think a lot of that desire to read that, read back these relationships comes from uh, an earlier understanding of gay history as an attempt to show that these forms of desire have always existed. And again, maybe this is where
1: our purposeful imprecision of language is helpful here, because if we're using gay to describe the specific social form that is developed by people in developed western capitalist economies in the early to mid 20th century to describe equal relationships between same gendered men and women then of course the relationship of a, you know literal king in the 1500s is not going to meet that description And I think that is the really important insight of the social construction theorists who are coming in at a time when all of the gay history that has so far been done has been done by these activist theorists who are really desperate to find historical precedent for themselves in order to justify their own continued existence. Um, At the same time, the activist theorists and their heirs, you know, the, the essentialists, I think, have a point in that sometimes looking for continuity while understanding that change is constant is also interesting and that sometimes when you look for continuity, you learn more than when you're only looking for ruptures.
0: Yeah, I think that's very interesting as well, looking at James, because, well, we can't we can't know, um, but he was married to a woman who he had children with, And he reportedly was very in love with, and he actually had an affair with a woman shortly after that marriage or during that marriage. Um, So whether, yeah, like looking to impose either of those positions on him or a bisexual position upon him as a description doesn't really make sense as much as understanding the nature of those relationships, Um, the marriage for the Royal family was always a matter of political game playing, of alliances. And also, that in the same way, these other relationships that perhaps people and uh, essentialists in the past have gone back to say, you know, James I was a cold, hard gay, is also not necessarily true because the relationships that he's having with his favourites are political relationships, are, um, are relationships of courts, they're relationships of trust and power. Um, you need a favourite in that position much like the film we were referencing earlier about Queen Anne, the favourite, right, uh, uh, dwells on those things. And, and the emotions get tied up in all sorts of political relationships, especially in a, a 17th century court where you're living in very close quarters with these pe- people, you know, and also they have these other roles of, you know, um, cleaning your ass or hmm. putting your clothes on in the morning or brushing your teeth for you or something, you know, like, you, you know, th- th- those are going to become intimate relationships. Absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, that's before we get accused of
1: bisexual erasure. Um, I think this is where it becomes clear that the title of this podcast, Bad Gaze, has its tongue planted firmly in its cheek, not just with bad for all of these people, but also with gays. I mean, um, these are people who have very complicated um, sexual and personal lives, and part of what we're trying to do is tease out how thinking through their lives under the rubric of gay can help us learn something and you could probably put another rubric on and learn something too absolutely so what do you vote james the first and sixth bad gay not
0: bad gay complicated gay um bad yes gay who knows i say bad yes gay
1: ish so i think we agree so uh, if people want to learn more about James I, uh, what sorts of places
0: could they turn to? Well, there are a number of different sources that deal with um, a lot of these issues, some really interesting books. Caliban and the Witch, as we mentioned, by Silvia Federici, um, Lineages of the Absolute Estate by Perry Anderson. Um, I was also reading Queer City by Peter Ackroyd, which is a, a a gay history of London, or hmm. a queer history of London, going right back to the Romans, which is uh, full of fascinating anecdotes and um, some of these these poems of the time, Uh, Ehud's Dagger, Class Struggle in the English Revolution by James Holston, and uh, David Moore Bergeron, I think you pronounce his name, who wrote a book called uh, King James and the Letters of Homoerotic Desire. Great. More great places to start, I think. Yeah.
1: So um, if you uh, have enjoyed what you've heard. You can support us on Patreon, and you've heard earlier in the episode how to do that. You can follow us on Twitter at Bad Gaze Pod, and you can also follow us individually. I'm at Hugh Lemmy. And I'm at Ben Writes Things. Thank you so much. <laughs>